such a joy just to talk with one another and fellowship and hear about how the Lord's working in our lives. And, you know, that, that's something that we don't want to miss in our fellowship. I mean, the, the reason that we have fellowship is because of Christ. Our fellowship is in Christ, and it's not just that we're sanctified by the Word and seeing Christ in the Word, but we're sanctified by seeing Christ at work in other believers as well. And that's an encouragement to us to see that He's living in them, and He's at work in them, and, uh, and to just wonder at the privilege that He's doing that through you, too, you know, uh, of all people. Corey Coleman, who would have guessed? Christ would use him as a, as a servant to display his glories in the world. Yeah. I'm not just talking about the fact that you're growing a beard either. But. <laughs> We're going to be looking at Numbers chapters 20 and 21 this morning. And I've titled this section, Look and Live. This is the section where we'll come across that serpent raised up on a standard that the Israelites were to look, look to and they would live. And I have a, I broke out the sections and within here and uh, had a really hard time coming up with like titles for the sections. What I mean is I had a hard time making them smaller and shorter. So, they're just more verbose this time. <laughs> so, this is uh, the morning of the verbose Sunday school lesson. So, uh, as we uh, approach this text together, let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for being our Savior the one who saves us from the sin that we are afflicted with, the one who is victor over death, which cannot defeat those who are in you, that you are the resurrected one who raises from the dead also, that you deal with the sin problem, you deal with the death problem, and you give us a certain hope in you that we will enter into Emmanuel's land and we wait for that day to be in that land, Beulah land, the place of beauty where only your truth shines and it is tarnished and unhindered by anything else, the day when we won't merely see in a glass or dimly, but we will see you clearly and face to face forever with unbroken fellowship pray that you help us to see your glories and to wonder at your marvelous love for your people as we study Numbers 20 to 21 together. Amen. Beginning in Numbers chapter 20, we see a, a funeral for the flawed faithful. Chapter 20 begins with the funeral of Miriam and it ends with the funeral of Aaron, and right in the middle of it is the foretold funeral of Moses who would 
follow his siblings at a later time. Numbers 20 verse 1 reads, Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. And that's all that's said about her. You know, there's not much to that memorial service, but if she were to have one, perhaps we would reflect how she had the privilege of seeing her brother as a baby placed in an ark where he would travel through the waters unto salvation and how she herself would go through the same waters of salvation and the Red Sea and be singing of that salvation on the other end with tambourine in hand, but also to remember that she was a sinner saved by grace. It was not long before this day of her funeral that she had sinned against Yahweh and His chosen leadership, and she here has received the wages of her sin. You remember on that day that she knew what it was to be diseased and healed as she was diseased with leprosy, but a mediator mediated for her, interceded for her, and she was healed. But on this day, though she has been diseased by sin, she has been forever healed through death. It has been, death has been converted into the best medicine that she could ever take because it would be the last medicine she would ever take and be healed forever. So verse 1 alone is reason enough to say, hallelujah, what a Savior. And her death was a reminder to the wilderness generation that they're all going to die in the wilderness because of their sin. But this plague of death that would overtake them would not separate them from the love of God or the mercy of God. There is a God who saves through water, and as we know throughout reading Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, that there's also a people who complain about water. Which brings us to this next section, chapter 20, verses 2 to 13, where the people complain about water again, and we see that the rebellion is contagious, that Moses ends up giving into this rebellion. And I also put kind of like as a subtitle to this section, the story of a de-deified leader. You see the most humble man on the planet is, it was written by the Holy Spirit in the book of Numbers, is also just a man. In verse 2 it begins, Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had breathed our last when our brothers breathed their last before Yahweh. Why then have you brought the assembly of Yahweh into this wilderness for us and our beast to die here? And why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of the meeting and fell on their faces. 
Then the glory of Yahweh appeared to them. Now, I'll just pause here. Has this happened before <laughs> where Moses and Aaron fall on their faces and the glory of Yahweh appears? And what usually happens right after that? Yeah, there's things like fire, judgment, death. Now, just note, this time things are different. In verse 7, it says, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod and you and your brother, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beast drink. So you see, this is different here. It isn't Yahweh saying, I'm angry and I'm going to kill them. Get out of the way. Instead of fire, it's water. Going on in verse 9, it says, So Moses took the rod from before Yahweh just as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? All right, what just went wrong there? <laughs> was he following instructions? Who was the one who was going to give him water? Yeah, was it Moses? I mean, they kept wanting to say that he was responsible for all of this stuff, and he really wasn't. And now all of a sudden he wants to say, okay, fine, I'm the one doing all of this stuff for you guys. Then Moses raised his hand high and he struck the rock twice with his rod. Now, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with striking the rock twice with his rod? Yeah, I just told to speak to it. That was it. He didn't say strike it twice. But even so, does God say, you know what, you messed it up. I'm not going to give him water. You guys can all just die. Say. So, Here's what happens. Even though he disobeys, even though the people had disobeyed, it says water came forth abundantly. This is a picture of grace that abounds more than our sin. It says, And the congregation and their beast drank. But Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with Yahweh and he proved himself holy among them. So even though he was gracious, their sins would still have consequences. Say, so I'm still going to show grace to you, but your actions are going to have consequences and you're not going to go into the land. There's this tension between, you know, in this kingdom of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that there's both good and evil. There's both grace and wrath held in tension as though they didn't treat God as holy, that He would still be treated as holy either in a devotion shown to them or him disciplining them. His holiness wouldn't be distorted by the failure of his people. This 
congregation in their complaints. You see that they had the poison of asp under their lips and their fangs had set into the veins of their leaders and the rebellion was contagious and could even overtake the most humble of men. And Moses, is, he was overtaken and he struck the rock twice. This rem reminds us of back in Exodus 17, there was another time that he stood on the rock and the presence of God was before that rock. And in that instance, he struck the rock once. He struck it only once. But in the second event with the rock, he's only to speak to it. What do you think is the significance of him being told not to strike it, but only to speak to it. Yeah, you get it. It's the, it's the Messiah rock that traveled with them and provided for them and that, that rock which was Christ that followed them was only to be struck once and then after that you only speak to him. He's never to be struck again. There's this Messiah rock gospel picture and Moses messes it up which is why he doesn't get to go into the promised land. And this puts an emphasis on the spoken word of God. It's the spoken word of God that's to remind them that this rock was only to be struck as your substitute once. Which was, that's exactly what the point was in Exodus 17. It was a people who should be struck by God, but instead he puts a substitute rock in their place that's struck in their place and provides living waters to them which they didn't deserve. 1 Corinthians 10.4 says, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ, which I'm sure I've said this a few times, but you know the, the number one, uh, I guess you'd call it title for Jesus is Lamb of God, and guess what the number two title is for him? Rock. He is our rock. That's exactly how Moses wrote about this and understood this. When you get at the end of Deuteronomy, you read Moses' rock song, uh, which is an offense to the fundamentalist in the room that Moses was in to rock music. Maybe like Credence Clearwater Revival or something. But he, you know, he's saying, you know, God is our rock. He's our protector, our provider, and, and guide. But what we see here in the life of Moses is that a life that's lived contrary to the, the gospel, it distorts the gospel. Like, how you live is also part of your witness. It's not just what you say, it's what you do. Your conduct matters very much. And it has consequences. Notice that Moses' rebellion, it's not met with partiality and that God doesn't say, well, because you have this high position that I've given you, I guess I can you know, overlook this. 
And because of your elevated status, I won't punish you like I punish other people. See, God doesn't show any partiality. Moses sinned like the wilderness generation, and he will die with the wilderness generation. This is a reminder to us that carelessness to God's commands are costly. You know, even though we remain under His grace and in His salvation, there's still consequences that may follow us for the rest of our life. And humble as Moses was in this moment of weakness, he didn't believe or he didn't have faith and he didn't treat Yahweh as holy. He fell into anger and violence, which was also used as a blessing in a way in that what it did was Moses decreased and Yahweh increased. People wouldn't look at Moses on a pedestal because Yahweh took away the pedestal. They wouldn't just say, well, we just follow Moses and everything he says because he was always right and never messed up at all. And we had talked uh, recently in our leadership training how something similar happened with Martin Lloyd-Jones and uh, having a, an errant view of the filling of the Spirit and believing that Christians could get this uh, second blessing of the Spirit and reach a, a higher level of Christianity when that happened. And he was brought to a public debate where he was to defend his position, but as people heard him set forth his position, they recognized he can't defend it from Scripture. And Ian Murray, who writes a biography on that, he comments on how this was a very good thing for the people to see that Lloyd-Jones was obviously wrong about something because what it did in their minds is it de-deified Lloyd-Jones. You know, they didn't put you know, an absolute trust in him, but they recognized we also have to discern what Martin Lloyd-Jones even teaches to us. J.C. Ryle, writing on this sort of phenomenon of the best of men being men, he says, quote, we must remember that the best of men are but men at their very best, and that the most eminent saints may be overtaken by temptation and yet be saints at heart after all. We must not hastily suppose that all is evil where there is an occasional appearance of evil. The holiest man may fall sadly for a time, and yet the grace within him may finally get a victory. Is a man's general character godly? Then let us suspend our judgment when he falls and hope on. End quote. This next section here, chapter 20, verses 14 to 21, you look at verse 14, it says, from Kadesh, Moses sent the messengers to the king of Edom. Now, Edom, they're from the family of what guy? Esau. And listen to this language, thus your brother. It's like, who's your brother, Edom? Your brother, Israel. And Israel came from what fella? Jacob. Yeah, so you have the, the Jacob and Esau saga continues. And Brother Israel, 
you know, this is Moses saying, your brother Israel has said, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt and we stayed in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. And then listen to the, the gospel testimony here. He says, so we cried out to Yahweh and he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn to the right or to the left until we pass through your territory. And guess what? Edom says, you shall not pass through us lest I come out to meet you with the sword. Not very brotherly. This is a reminder. This is why I titled this, This Place Is Not Your Home. You know, the sojourning Israelites, right? Now, this is not your home. And in parentheses, and family problems will remind you of this. What was it that Edom hated so much about his brother? Well, I think it's ultimately this testimony of Yahweh who had delivered them. You remember Esau was the one who despised his birthright. He despised having any sort of connection to being a, a son of Yahweh. He wanted nothing to do with that. But despite the difficult family ties and relationship, you see that God is the God who sustains his people through their sojourn. He's the one who is with them even though they live in a place that is not their home and it's not his home either. Edom cannot separate Israel from the love of God. But what about death? We come to another funeral at the end of this chapter where the high priest Aaron dies and we see that the priest dies but the priesthood doesn't. It's going to continue on to Eliezer and ultimately point forward to a better high priest in Christ. Verse 22 begins, Then they set out from Kadesh and the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor and Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor by the broader or by the border of the land of Edom. So you think about this, what has just happened with Edom. You know, we can't go there, can't sojourn there. We're outside. We can't be gathered to our own family. So what happens? Well, it says Aaron will be gathered to his people. You know, they're already thinking we can't be gathered to our own people. It says Aaron will be gathered to his people. For he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. And why wouldn't he enter the land? Because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eleazar and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar. So Aaron will be gathered to his people and will die there. So Moses did just as Yahweh had commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation, and Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar. And Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. 
So all the congregation saw that Aaron breathed his last, and all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. Again, a very short memorial and not to be much to be said about this man, Aaron, but in evident humility, a guy who sat quietly after burying two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu, who in humility received the Lord's sovereign working in that, as well as receiving the just discipline of his sins and being derobed and passing it on to his son, Eliezer. You, know, you don't read that he fought to try to maintain the priestly robe. So he just went up the mountain, took it off, handed it to him. There's an evident trust of the Lord here in the end of his life that you see. And this section of Yahweh speaking about Aaron, it begins and ends with the words, Aaron will be gathered to his people. There is a family in this life that he couldn't be gathered to, but there is a family gathering in which he would always have a seat at the table. You see here, Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron about life beyond the grave. He spoke to them about a resurrection gathering, not unlike the old spiritual songs that often have that line, I'm going to meet my mother there. Now, Aaron died because he rebelled, and we see again that death is no respecter of persons or positions. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And though he died, he was gathered to his people. Yeah, not, not at Meribah, but he was the one who uh, joined the rebellion with Miriam and challenging Moses' leadership, yeah. Which is perhaps why, you know, those two die first from that event, and then Moses dies from this event a little bit later. Perhaps as a, you know, a, a notable side note here, you know, the the resurrection is being taught and expected. Right? Resurrection is something that shows up in Scripture at least as early as when Abraham took up Isaac to his almost sacrifice. And knowing that he was supposed to sacrifice him, he told the servants who came from him, he says, me, me and the boy will return to you. And he, and he uses that word up, which is the great resurrection word of the Old Testament in Hebrews, it says, Abraham believed that God would raise the dead. That's how he could do it. So resurrection isn't something that shows up like toward the end of the Gospels way later in the Bible. Death prevented Aaron from continuing his priesthood, but God would graciously continue that hereditary priesthood of the Levites to continue to point forward toward the need of a greater priesthood where you didn't keep having a priest who would die. Hebrews 7, 
23 to 25 says, the former priest on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Aaron died there on the mountaintop, and it says that Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. And what's significant about this is you see that, you know, most people were only wept for for seven days, but this man for 30 days. And maybe these Israelite people weren't, you know, totally off or just absolutely, utterly rebellious, but they recognized something about the sacrificial love of this man on their behalf and his importance, and so they grieved him for 30 days, no doubt remembering this is the man who sacrificed for us. His life was marked by the blood and gore of the ministry of self-denial on behalf of others. He was a gospel minister to us. He was a faithful and humble man, and we are grieved to have lost him. Aaron was not a man chosen for his aptitude or ability to be holy, but by the grace of God, he was what he was, and he received his holy status not by how well he did his job, but by the grace of God who called him and finished the good work that he began in him. And this holiness, which God demanded of Israel, wasn't for Israel alone. We see that it was also for the nations. When we come to verses 1 to 3, I call this a short devotional on destruction. It says in verse 1, chapter 21, Then the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim. And he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. Then Yahweh heard the voice of Israel and gave the Canaanites over, so they devoted them and their cities to destruction. Thus, the name of the place was called Hormah or Destruction, destruction city or destruction decapolis or something cool like that. You know, just after these two funerals, the Israelites have to deal with the trial of some of them now being taken captive by Canaanites, but you see something in them where perhaps there's some sort of change, maybe, in that now they want to devote these enemies to destruction. And it's just like, well, what's so significant about them devoting their enemies totally to destruction. Well, they weren't fighting them to get the war spoils. You know, this wasn't an endeavor to get something for themselves. It was an endeavor to show that they trust the Lord and want to honor Him and give everything to Him that is due to Him. Primarily here, a display of the holiness of who He is, His holy judgment carried out in the world. But tragically, while the Israelites would devote others to destruction, they found themselves defeated by their 
own impatience, which led to their self-destruction. See that beginning in verse 4, chapter 21, verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And they became impatient on the way. Now, impatience, how bad of a sin is impatience? Is there a lot, you know, you're kind of categorizing sin. You think, I think I'll put this in respectable sins. Not that big of a deal. Everybody does it. That's okay. Or would you file it under deadly sins? Now, let's continue on in verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. So Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it will be that everyone who is bitten and looks at it will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it happened that if a serpent bit any man when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Why serpents? Why do you think serpents of all things? Genesis 3.15 and 14, right? <laughs> this is a reminder that the belly crawler will be beaten, that the dust eater will be defeated, that curse will be reversed to blessing. And you see here this mixture of judgment and grace and that you see the people in the past they sin and there's just fire and death and then you see the people sin and then there's water okay and then in this event you kind of have that judgment and grace brought together you have you know fiery serpents and a way of salvation and some people live and so it's all mixed together here and this serpent affliction what it does is it, it raises prayers to God that he would raise his heel over the head of the serpent and crush it. They were handed over to the seed of the serpent in a way to learn that service in his house is hard and that they need a savior. And we read that they confessed their sins. They had Moses pray for them and they were delivered. And it's difficult to tell if you know, this is an earthly sorrow or godly sorrow, if this is a Pharaoh type of prayer where they just don't like the consequences and want Moses to fix it. And most likely it's just a mixed group, you know, who knows? You know, only the Lord knows the heart. And throughout all of this, there's always a faithful remnant. And how were these people saved? How were these sinners saved? saved in the wilderness. Think about that symbol on the side of the ambulances that we see driving around. 
You ever notice that on the side of the ambulance, there's a standard and a serpent wrapped around it. I wonder where they got that idea from. It's a cool tattoo idea. I'm not recommending that. But <laughs> uh, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. <laughs> Are people saved because of their, when they're afflicted by something, that they have the ability to track down the ambulance and get inside of it? No. I, most of the time, you know, at most, all they can do is look. <laughs> they can look and live if they're even able to do that. And that's how the Israelites were saved, just by looking. But what were they looking at? A serpent. And what, what was the serpent exactly? It was, no, it was the thing that afflicted them. They're looking at the thing that afflicted them. And how were Israelites taught to view these slithering reptiles? Because I mean, think about it, you know, in their sacrificial system, there's, you know, there's these clean animals that make you clean. And there's something like you just don't touch them. You get booted out of the camp for a week. A serpent. Was this a clean or unclean creature? That's a, this is weird, right? Is <laughs> that you're looking at this thing that it's unclean, it's abhorrent. I mean, if the bread of life was distasteful death to them, how much more an unclean reptile being the thing that you look at and you're saved? It was normally clean animals that were sacrificed that were tied to this idea of being made clean, but now a cursed thing is what cures them. How foolish is the way of salvation? Looking at a serpent on a standard and living, or you think about Naaman, the captain of the Syrian host, who, you know, the, the way he would be saved is pictured in him dipping himself seven times in a dirty river to be made clean. This is a way that the Lord humbles him, his people. And they have to do something that just seems so foolish and counterintuitive. How humbling to receive so counterintuitive a salvation. It's a salvation that's not deserved but undeserved. I think that's how the world thinks of it. You know, the reason that people get a reward is because they earned it. But with God's salvation, it's like you haven't earned it. You can't. You deserve death. But you get the reward of Christ and what He won through His life. It's a salvation not for good people but for ungodly people. It's a salvation that's not by performance but by promise. This event may bring you to recall John the Baptist and how when he was preaching in the wilderness of all places in God's providence, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then that one who is the Lamb of God later teaches Nicodemus in John 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, 
so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. I suppose that Nicodemus could say, well, I've never looked at an unclean thing to find my salvation in it. <laughs> Misunderstanding his heritage. But you see how shocking it is to see that, you know, our Savior, a serpent on a standard? Like we think of him as, you know, a lion or a lamb or the rock. Yeah, come on, Jesus, a serpent? That just doesn't seem like the thing to pick, but it is the thing that God has chosen to teach us something about salvation and that it involves your looking at the curse of death on something else and receiving the blessing of life which you didn't deserve. You see the same concept taught in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So you think about that on the cross. You know, Christ made sin on our behalf. And it says on the other end, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see the exchange is that when you're looking at Christ on the cross, He's taking on the affliction of the serpent and sin, but He's giving life and righteousness. When we look at the cross, we look at our sin nailed to it, that we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. And we look at the cross to see both the righteous wrath of God satisfied and Jesus' righteous life gifted to us. And so simple is the way of salvation that you simply have to have the faith of a child to receive it. Just look. You don't have to ask a bunch of questions about why this, why that. You don't need to know a lot of things. You just need to know, look, that's all you got to do is just look. And such ideas are echoed in the testimony of that great preacher, Charles Spurgeon. And I'd like to read that to you at length, a section of it. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God and sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I heard of the primitive Methodist how they sing so loudly that they made people's heads ache, but that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved and if they could tell me that. I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but... This man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look, 
Now, look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone could look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, Look unto me, I, said he in broad Essex. Many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some on ye saying, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, and he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey it now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, you man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up. The people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ and simple faith which looks alone to Him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. As the testimony of God's holiness and faithfulness goes on in Numbers 21, this last section, you see success and song, Sihon and Og, which becomes a part of the Israelites' creed. In 21, 10 to 20, that section, you see that the Israelites began to start having great victory and war, and there's this book called the Book of the Wars of Yahweh, 
which display who the true warrior really was in all these battles, that it wasn't the battles of the Israelites, but of Yahweh fighting for them. And if you look there in verse 17, you'll see that this is when they wrote that great VBS hit, Spring Up, O Well. That might be like the oldest song in our hymnal if we have it. <laughs> and then in beginning in verse 21 to 35, we read about Sihon and Og, which the reason why I say this is part of the Israelites' creed is to kind of bring up how it's like the Apostles' Creed. When we're talking about the Apostles' Creed, we recount how Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born from the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate. There's things that we confess and believe, and this event would become a part of the Israelites' creed, and they would recount Sihon and Og as a memory of God's salvation and a reminder of His faithfulness looking forward in Deuteronomy 3, Moses preaches this to them and he says, so Yahweh our God also gave Og, king of Bashan, with all his people over into our hand and we struck them until there was no survivor remaining for him and we captured all his cities at that time. There was not a town which we did not take from them, 60 cities, all the region of Argob, the king of Og and Bashan. We see here that holiness was not just for Israel but for all nations. He would make people holy with a salvation through judgment. And if God won't spare holy judgment of his own chosen nation, he won't spare any nation. And what you see in this event of the success over these various nations is that the promised land is never revoked from Israel because of their disobedience, because their salvation was never based on their performance ever. It was always based on promise, particularly, specifically that promise of land to their forefather, Abraham. And we're beginning to see here a transition from that wilderness generation who's gonna die in the wilderness and the promised land generation who will be led in victory under Joshua. This is a reminder of certain hope in God's land promise. I think it's interesting to note here in Moses' life as you keep reading on of the history of his life that he didn't spend the rest of his life bemoaning how he had messed things up this one time. Despairing of our failures and how we failed God is ultimately evidence of pride and self-righteousness because we think the victory ultimately comes from us and it belongs to us. I should have been able to do that because I'm good enough to pull stuff off like that. Well, Moses didn't bemoan his previous failures, but in humility what happens is he just goes on believing God and trusting Him and treating Him as holy and looking to Him rather than Himself and His failures. He looked to the Messiah and He lived in Him. And so Moses, toward the end of his life, he preached the unfailing love of God to the future faithful generation in Deuteronomy 31 this way. 
So Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to come and go, and Yahweh has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. It is Yahweh your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as Yahweh has spoken. And Yahweh will do to them just as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And Yahweh will give them over before you, and you shall do to them according to the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or be in dread of them. For Yahweh your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. This is a reminder. In a way, it's a sort of Romans 8 moment. If God is with us, then who can be against us? Or if He's for us, who can be against us? Can, ever, can anything separate us from the love of God, even the death of Miriam or the death of Aaron or Sihon or Og, Amorites, Canaanites? Can anything separate us from the love of God? By grace alone, we know that our life began in Christ the day that we looked and lived, but that's also how our life continues. We keep looking and living. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Lord Jesus, we thank You for giving us eyes to look to You and to understand something of that life-changing, history-changing event of the cross, which would not only change the calendar of history, but it would change many lives forever and ever, including even our own selves. You are the faithful one. You are the gracious one. And you have not given us the judgment that we deserve, but you have taken it upon yourself to be our healer from the disease that once existed in our hearts and to continue to be our medicine to turn us from sin and to continue to be our hope in the day that we look forward that we will be one day totally free from any experience and struggle of temptation, and we wait for and we long for that day and pray that this passage would build in us a boldness and confidence, a strength and a courage to live for you today because we know that you'll never fail us, that you'll never forsake us, that you will bring us all the way into the place which you have prepared for us. Amen.